As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Stephen Rusciuto, the U.S. Chief Economist. What's the common ground? I'm talking about common ground of four central bankers. Right now, what's the common ground of the brilliant Rusciuto constum research at Missoula? What do you both agree on? Well, I mean, I think the answer is very, very simple, is that, you know, there is a dynamic trade-off going on between the global political forces and the global deflation or disinflationary forces versus the cyclical local inflationary forces at several of the individual countries are experiencing. And it's this battle that's being reflected in the yield curve. You know, the reason why long-term rates can't mount a sustained upward movement is everyone looks at it and says, okay, eventually the Fed's going to be successful at holding down inflation. So how far do we need to push? But by the same token, there's global deflationary forces out there that's pulling down long-term rates. At the front end of the curve, it's all about domestic cyclical inflation stories, and that's pushing the curve. So the curve is in this inverted standpoint. It's been here for over a year, and people keep on expecting mm-hmm. the curve to to shift back to a more normal position. And the reality is it's probably just not going to happen. I'm talking on camera with smart people like S.A. Adam Posen, the Peterson Institute. I'm talking off camera with all the officials that don't want to talk to me on camera. Are they working out of the textbooks you used in school or are they making it up at Jackson Hole internationally? Well, they, they should be working out of the textbooks. They should be actually going back to the older textbooks, the Keynesian textbooks, because the reality is we learned from COVID that Keynesian economics was the right brand of economics, and we've gotten the response we expected from a Keynesian stimulus. Um, and therefore, a lot of the Nouvelle discussion is kind of should be put to the wayside. In fact, one of the things that worries the most that I hear from the Federal Reserve officials is this idea of as inflation comes down, real rates go up, and therefore the tightening gets greater. The reality is corporate CEOs do not make decisions on after-the-fact real interest rates. They make decisions based on what they expect nominal interest rates to be. And that nominal interest rate assumes an assumption for real returns and an inflation expectation. And if those nominal interest rates are are rising, that's a bigger problem than them looking back and saying, oh, well, real rates were higher. All right. Let's uh, put this all together and raise a question about the soft landing narrative that seems to now be the consensus on Wall Street. It seems as though this has become a commonplace idea, even though it's been elusive historically. I see you laughing. Are you seeing material cracks that challenge the idea of this that people are ignoring? No, I don't see any material cracks right now, but I think the reality you have to understand is that 
any recessionary tendency will wind up being a hard landing. You know, there are differences between crashes, credit crunches, and there are differences between recessions. And this is going to have to be an inflation recession. Um, and that's the result. And that's not necessarily a soft landing. A soft landing is this vague concept where you bring the economy back to trend growth and inflation comes back in that direction as well. That's not going to happen with a labor market as tight as we have today. Um, and it's going to be hard to get inflation to go from 4% to 2%, a lot harder than it was to go from 9 to 4 so we're talking this morning about Foot Locker, about uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, about some of the results in retailers that have struggled in the past uh, and that are now seeing that kind of come to a fore. And we're raising a question, is this idiosyncratic stories of management structures and business models that have become less relevant, or is this something broader about consumer spending? From your view, not to go into the companies themselves, but what do you think it is? No, there's a lot of idiosyncratic risk. I mean, keep in mind how long the expansion was prior to the COVID meltdown, and then the nature of the COVID restructuring and the rebalancing or the reacceleration really has papered over a lot of problems for a very long period of time. And they all have to come home to roost. And this is the idea that a recession is somewhat therapeutic if it's not a credit crunch. And we uh, kind of need that in this environment. You are acclaimed, and I'm going to go to Olivia Blanchard's study of r starred and where we are. And the one phrase that permeates, and this is the humility of Blanchard's work, is other factors. Yeah. He says there's things out there we don't know. You own the high ground on this. What are the other factors that make this r starred certitude a mystery? Uh, the real issue is when you look at balance sheets, which we don't do a lot of. Uh, we don't look at balance sheets and try to assess where we are. We look at things like financial stress measures, which, to be honest with you, we play games with because they're statistically created out of indices that we see published in markets. The reality is when you get to look at the underlying balance sheets of companies and you look at them at a macro level, balance sheets are extraordinarily healthy. And this is why when you look at Silicon Valley and so forth, you could actually back away from that having been a credit crunch because the underlying balance sheet of the banking industry was very healthy. Just to sort of pull this all together, what is an inflationary recession? What is an inflation recession, what you just said? Well, the difference between an inflation recession and a credit recession is basically the interest rate increases and the inversion of the curve slow the economy to bring down inflation. In a credit crunch, what happens is the inverted <clears throat> curve causes a credit crunch that then causes a recession. Mm -hmm. So the Federal Reserve has to slow the economy. You can't get the economy to slow and get inflation to come down to target unless you're going to create an excess in the labor market right. or some excess in the labor market. That's what they have to accomplish. You can only do that by having GDP contract. That's a recession. The reality from a credit crunch standpoint is the credit crunch causes the recession. And that's what 1990 was, that was what 2000 was, that was 2007 was. And the reality is that's what COVID was, because COVID was a massive corporate balance sheet problem and household balance sheet problem. And that's why they right. required subsidy levels of interest rates. Steve Rusciuto, thank you so much with Mizzou. Suzanne Saunders joins us right now to save the show. Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. This is an important conversation given the gloom out there. What's the Saunders gloom measurement right now, Lizanne? How gloomy is it in the land of equities? 
So I, we really started to face problems at the beginning of June. Lots of conversation, obviously, about the concentration problem, the Magnificent Seven dominating pretty much all performance. At the same time, you only had 15% of the S&P constituents outperforming the index over the prior 60 days. So it was sort of this double whammy of concentration, which often happens in cap-weighted indexes, but such significant underperformance. Initially, we started to see some breadth improvement at the beginning of the pullback that we saw up the cap spectrum into those mega cap names. Now, unfortunately, we've seen this deterioration in breadth and it's sort of across the board. And I think more has to be worked out there. Even on a day like yesterday, under the surface, it, it didn't look great. And these pullbacks tend to have three steps. You know, the first step is you, you start the down move and you get a little bit of a relief rally and then you yeah. continue. I don't know if it's going to be into correction territory, but I think there's probably a, a bit more that has to, uh, to come out. You are right where I want to go. Go to review, folks, from 2021, the peak of the markets, SPX is down 9%, 8%, whatever. And then the late, the recent pullback has just been a crater, down 4%. Listen, and you got to be kidding me. You and I remember when a correction was a correction. Is the <laughs> mathematics of correction bear market, or dare I say down 35% still in place, or are we in a new world? Well, so we, we've gone now almost 600 days without hitting a new cycle high. That's a pretty extended period of time. And that suggests that this is more likely a rally uh uh, you know, in a in a bear market, um, but we've we've all been surprised so many times with the unique nature of this cycle, and we still have the the dip buyers that come in. And what's interesting is those those mini phases that happen of the dip buyers stepping in. It's also when you see a lot of attention go down the quality spectrum. You know, you get lifts in the meme stocks and the non-profitable areas. That's the, the segment of the market that I think you want to, to use trader lingo fade. I think you want to continue to lean into, call it the quality trade and, and, and just be mindful of FOMO down the quality spectrum, especially in non-profitable areas. One, one area that has seen a, a large amount of interest, especially in light of this question around where we are in the cycle, has been consumer discretionary. And I'm wondering if you think people have gotten over their skis and the optimism that the savings won't run out <clears throat> for individuals. And I'm among those people that question maybe it's never going to run out. But then the Macy's CEO got on the call and said that credit card delinquency is ticking up pretty significantly yeah. and really seeing consumers uh, much more restrained with how much they're spending. Do you buy that story? Do you think that's going to come to the four more. I, I do. And if you, you, you have to uh, peel a layer or two back from the onion when looking at things like broader retail sales or even individual retailers reports to look at unit sales, the biases in terms of consumers moving more toward, um, you know, generic type brands as opposed to higher end brands. We also have to be really mindful of differentiating between nominal data and a lot of retail data is expressed in nominal terms and in in re real terms. And you're right. I think pointing out delinquency is important. It's mostly been concentrated down in the higher risk segments, lower income, subprime, but you're starting to see it creep into more of the sort of quality segments on the delinquency side. I still think, though, that it's the labor market that is most important to ongoing consumption remaining somewhat healthy, um, even more so probably than the, the savings store 
category, the excess uh, savings. I think it's the labor market. And if we start to see more cracks in the labor market, I, I think the consumer could maybe shut down the spigots a fairly quickly. Liz, and what kind of cracks are we seeing now in the labor market? Um, yeah, hours worked have come down quite a bit in this environment where there might still be labor hoarding. Uh, you're certainly seeing that. You've seen um, weakness in temporary employment, multiple job holders having gone up. You've had some bouts of an increase in unemployment claims. Uh, we've seen the, the some of the, the uh, commentary from some of the recruiting companies that are withdrawing guidance. So I think you're going to start to see it on the, on the job openings a layoff announcement uh, side of things. So it's there's still cracks, but they're wider than they were a few months ago. It's just happening really, really slowly, isn't it? Just much slower than we thought it would. Lizanne, thank you for the update. As always, Lizanne Saunders there at Charles Schwab. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What is important here at Surveillance is we like to focus for 30 minutes on a theme. Damien Sassauer is scheduled to darken the door on EM and the market dynamics. And far more, John, is to speak to someone, including the frontier economy, Europe. And that would be Dr. Weissman with all of his work at Bear Stearns and now at Macquarie. And Terry, good to see you. Fantastic, as always. What a change over in Europe. Eh? We thought this year would be good, driven by China reopening. How important do you think the global slowdown is going to be in Jackson Hole this Friday? Not too important, because I think that the, the theme of the symposium or the conference, if you will, is not the short term. It's not the cyclical themes. Uh, the theme they've laid out is the, the structural changes in the global economy. And when you hear something like that, you think that the speakers are going to be directed towards talking about things that happen a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. As far as Powell's speech goes, look, the Fed could, if it wanted to, pat itself on the back. Inflation is low in the U.S. The economy looks a bit robust at least in certain quarters, but I don't think it's time for him to do that. There are still too many hawks on the FOMC panel that are nudging him towards at least sounding as if he should be hawkish from a medium-term and long-term perspective. When you think about those narratives about the global economy that are structural and longer-term uh, in perspective, they are things like climate change, deglobalization, demographic change, high debt in the emerging markets. Those are all things that sound inflationary. At least two of them feel like negative supply shocks. So I don't think he'll be 
inclined to say much about the short term and the outlook for the Fed funds rate. I think he will focus if he sticks to the narrative of the symposium on those longer term considerations. Right. And that will mean that he's going to stress that it's going to be difficult to get to that last mile of inflation decline from 3% to 2%. And therefore, <clears throat> don't expect rates to be cut. I look at Europe and what we're going to hear from Powell and from Lagarde and other uh, worthies are going to be there is well. And I look at our start as a debate here. It's an academic debate of a full and running economy. In Europe, whether it's Eurosclerosis or something new, can there be a European R-STARD? Can you do legit economic analysis of the European experiment? You, you can, and I think you can do uh, legitimate uh, analysis of the current cycle in Europe, this weakness that we're seeing both in manufacturing and now in the services. I think to a large extent, the manufacturing slowdown in Europe is coincident with the Chinese manufacturing slowdown. I don't think you can separate the two. Look, China had this massive slowdown in manufacturing in the second quarter. Well, look at that. Europe had a massive slowdown in manufacturing in the second quarter, too. And we know those economies are connected through the German industrial uh, complex and the export economy in Europe. So I don't think that's too much of a mystery. China and Europe are coincident. I do think, however, that this services slowdown we're seeing is also analyzable, but I think the focus has been too much on what the ECB has done with rates. It hasn't been enough on what the ECB has done with liquidity that it issues to the banks. The Teltro program has been winding down out of the ECB for a few months now. And if you look at credit creation coming out of Europe, the extent to which banks have issued credit to the private economy, it has flatlined. And that's the reason why Europe is now seeing this slump in services. Just to underscore this, in other words, the slowdown in services is directly related to the transmission mechanism of ECB policy, not necessarily what's going on with China, correct? Is that basically what you're saying? Th that's right. But okay. I'm, what I'm also saying is don't look at rates. Don't look at the deposit rate being at three and three quarters percent. That doesn't really tell you much about what's going to happen to the U European economy. Look at bank credit. Look at broader monetary aggregates. They have flat Flatlined in nominal terms, they're actually down year on year in real terms. It's the credit economy that people don't focus enough on. And if they had been focusing on that flatlining, they would have predicted the slowdown in aggregate demand in Europe. Is the European economy so different from the U.S. economy in terms of the rate structure and the lending structure that there is no analog to be drawn in terms of how higher rates in Europe are affecting the economy and how they will eventually trickle out in the U.S. economy and affect the economy there? They should affect the U.S. economy the same way, but there is an important difference between the European economy and the U.S. economy. And that's as follows. The European economy is overly dependent on its banking system for the extension of credit. They really don't have non-bank lenders. They don't really have direct lending in Europe. Everyone who wants a loan ultimately has to find his way to a, his or her way uh, to a bank. In the U.S., it's completely different. Now, if you were just to analyze the banking systems in Europe versus the U.S., you'd find a lot of similarities right now. You'd find that credit is contracting. You'd find that loan officers in the U.S., just as in Europe, are much less willing to extend loans. Maybe the reasons are, are mildly different. Maybe in the U.S. it has to do with regulatory overhang. Maybe in Europe it has to do with what the ECB has done. That's the similarity. The difference, though, is that the U.S. doesn't have to depend just on its <clears throat> banks. There are other sources of lending to support the startup economy, mm. the legacy economy. We don't have that in Europe. And therefore, when banking bank credit uh, contracts in Europe, you feel the effect on aggregate demand much more than you do in the U.S. And I think that's what we're seeing now. The U.S. will catch up, though. There is a time for a surveillance Audible. We will do it right now with Thierry Weissman as well. Years ago, you would publish with Emmy Shao, David Malpass, and the rest of the clan at Bear Stearns on Latin America, and the world would stop. Argentina, do we care, or is it just the problem child of our lifetimes? 
I don't care. Uh, I think it's the problem child of our lifetimes. Um, you know, it, it's not that well integrated into the global economy. Yes, it has it has like some commodity exports, but it lose the hysteria. Yeah, lose the hysteria on, on Argentina. Uh, it's not terrible, by the way, that they may have a president that's going to adopt some radical market policies in the final analysis. When you have a situation like this that hasn't been working for you know uh, more than more than four decades, why be scared I, I of something new? Why why be scared of something new? <laughs> exactly. I would be much more scared of something old. Uh, you know, so uh, okay. So what should the IMF do? They've been handing them out gazillions, gazillions. They're, yeah. they're going to write a check in Morocco, I assume. The IMF should just going. wait. You cannot make a decision with regard to the extension of credit until you see what the political economy is. Let, let, things, let things simmer for a while in Argentina. Let's see what the policy agenda would be under a new president or a legacy administration, and then make a decision. Terry, thank you. It's good to see you, as My always. Pleasure. Terry Weissman there of Macquarie <clears throat> on the global economy. Greg Vallier joins us, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist, AGF. Greg, I'm going to cut to the chase. The stereotype is the polarity of the nation and maybe even the polarity of the party. Let's cut to the Wisconsin chase. Wisconsin was won by Biden by under one percentage point, 0.63 percent. Trump won it four years earlier by 0.77 percent. How does this debate fold into those X number, those 10 key states that make the difference in November of next year? Well, this is the opening night, uh, obviously. Uh, I'll get my espresso machine out. It's going to be a late night. I, I think it's time for some new faces. And I think maybe one of the stories tomorrow morning will be uh, the emergence of Tim Scott, the African-American senator from South Carolina. Maybe this guy, Ramaswamy. There's a couple of other people who might do well. It's the beginnings of a sign that the country will look at fresh faces. Where is the debris of George? George Bush Sr., somebody who worked in office for decades and decades, centrist Republican. Is that Chris Christie or am I confused? Well, Chris Christie is a centrist, but he's also very pugnacious. Uh, he, he can brawl, and I think he will be the hitman to go after Donald Trump. I, I don't blame Trump for not showing up. I mean, he's ahead by 40 points in a lot of states, so he'd have nothing to gain and everything to lose by, by showing up. But he, he will be a, a, a subject. I would focus, Tom, on other issues that will be interesting tonight. Uh, aid to Ukraine. What do we do about the budget deficit? There are issues where the the party is divided. And that's one reason why people actually want to hear the issues which have gotten drowned out by some of the larger uh, concepts. I do want to dig into that. But before we do, you said you want to see fresh faces. And a lot of people are looking for that at a time where Ron DeSantis is having to prove himself in a new way. What does he have to do to reclaim his spot as number two and get some uh, growth in his campaign promise? Well, no gaffes, Lisa. I think he, he can't afford another uh, misstep. But to a certain extent, he has an advantage in that his expectations are low. I think people aren't expecting him to show much, so he might exceed those, those low expectations. When you talk about some of the divisive issues, you mentioned aid to Ukraine. Where is sort of the popular feeling within the Republican Party? Is there consensus that some of these candidates are going to try to reflect? And is it different from the more general population consensus? 
Good question. I think for the base in the party, in some of these candidates, the feeling is we've spent enough on Ukraine uh, for a war that hasn't been won. Uh, I think there's also a real division on Social Security and how you deal with a budget deficit. Chris Christie has been very outspoken saying we need Social Security reform. Uh, DeSantis said that a few years ago. Will he embrace that tonight? That I'm not so sure of. Greg, for our international audience, and frankly, I, I'm not up to speed on this as well, what's the primary process look like? Is it radically different than what we grew up with? Is there something new this year as we stagger through February? No, I don't think so. I mean, the... the uh Signing deadlines come uh, late fall by Thanksgiving. A lot of states will have their their deadlines, which will focus, I think, on uh, the governor of, of Virginia. I, I think there's a chance that Glenn Youngkin, late in the sign-up period, will decide, you know, if it's just Trump and nobody right. else looking strong, you know, Glenn Youngkin's worth about half a billion dollars. And I wouldn't put it out of the question him running at the last minute. Who else has money? I mean, obviously, President Trump, even with the legal challenges, has money. Uh, Mr. Pence, I believe, is struggling. Which of the candidates tonight on the, the, on the stage has money? Well, not, not a lot of them have Glenn Youngkin money. Uh, I, Earlier in the year, DeSantis raised a decent amount of money, but the surprise fundraiser in the last few months has been Tim Scott. And again, I think Tim Scott is going to be the surprise of the night. Greg Fabier, thank you, Greg, as always. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.